Hello and welcome to today's reading of The Courier for Tuesday, February 20th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and we will start with the front page. Our headline is, this is an investigative special report, Where the Pipes Lead. Will Poorer Families Be Left Behind in Race to Replace Lead Pipes in the Next Decade? And this is an article by Lauren Cross. Lead pipes have been banned since the 1980s, but millions of residents in Illinois and across the Midwest remain exposed to lead from water lines, a Lee Enterprises news investigation shows. And the prospects for an equitable fix for low-income families could be dimming. The Lee probe of public records and interviews shows. Lead water lines hold the potential to poison people who drink water from them. Infants and children are particularly at risk for significant health problems tied to lead exposure because their bodies absorb the neurotoxin more easily. Prolonged exposure can lead to developmental delays, lowered IQs, and brain damage. On November 30th, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency proposed long-awaited new drinking water regulations that include a 10-year deadline for water systems to eliminate lead lines with exemptions for bigger cities like Chicago. A major concern voiced by environmental advocates, however, is now part of the cost is how part of the cost will fall on homeowners because the EPA did not outright ban utility companies from charging residents for the remediation. It's a move that will disproportionately harm low-income households, renters, and people of color, according to Suzanne Novak, senior attorney with the nonprofit law firm Earth Justice. If we don't prohibit charging a customer, we may very well end up with a two-tiered system where wealthier communities, which are disproportionately white, will have more of their lead service lines replaced than in other low-income and black and brown communities, Novak said. Since high-profile lead contamination crises in places like Flint, Michigan, there have been a major push in recent years to replace an estimated 9.2 million lead pipes in the U.S. Under the Biden administration, EPA has provided nearly $800 million in grants to assist utilities that serve disadvantaged communities. But environmental justice advocates say even with an unprecedented boost from the Biden administration, there's not enough federal or state money to address a glaring problem. What if homeowners can't afford to replace the lead pipes considered part of their private property? Across the U.S., many utilities argue they are only financially responsible for the lead line from the water main to the curb and that from the curb to the home is the responsibility of homeowners. So many public and private utilities are ultimately telling residents, pay up or we'll pass your house. In some cases, utilities are covering the costs by issuing bonds, raising customer rates across the board, or reimbursing customers up to a certain amount once the replacement is complete. In other cases, utilities have conducted partials in which only the public half of the lead service line is replaced, leaving the private side intact and the potential for water, co- water contamination in play. EPA has recently proposed banning the common practice of partial replacements, citing dangerous spikes in lead levels post-removal. According to EPA's latest estimates, Illinois could have as many as 1.4 million lead service lines, or about 11% of the country's inventory, leaving millions exposed. Minority and low-income populations are already disproportionately exposed to lead in drinking water, raising concerns in the environmental justice community 
about utilities placing the burden of costly replacements on those populations. According to the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, young children at highest risk for lead exposure are those living in housing built before 1978, non-Hispanic, Black, or African-American children, children eligible for Medicaid, and children living in areas with higher poverty rates. Eric Olson of the National Resource Defense Council and other environmental justice advocates say it's crucial for utilities to fund the full cost of replacement under both public and private property. The discriminatory effects of lead line replacement programs will cost, with cost sharing are well documented and undeniable. Fortunately, they are also avoidable. Subjecting poor and non-white communities already bearing the brunt of lead exposure to prolonged or increased lead intake is illegal and contrary to federal requirements, the NRDC and Earth Justice wrote to the EPA this past spring ahead of EPA's publishing of the new regulations. The EPA's newly proposed regulations remain subject to change as the agency seeks public comment over a 60-day window. The deadline for the public to submit comment was February 5th. While there are several provisions in the EPA proposal that are heartening and provide us a ray of hope, the lack of a mandate for water systems to pay for full lead line replacement is one of the major concerns we have with the proposed rule. We're also concerned about the availability of extensions for some cities. Chicago, for example, could get from 40 to 50 years to replace all of its lead lines. <clears throat> Far too long, Olson said. In proposing new water regulations, EPA officials said the agency initially considered the perspective from stakeholders that cost sharing should be banned, <clears throat> but, but ultimately chose not to do so. Ultimately, the EPA decided to kick that question back to state and local government. How a water system covers the cost of compliance with a national drinking water regulation is, at its core, a matter of state and local law, the agency stated in releasing its proposal. There is no explicit statutory authority for EPA to do so. State and local governments regulate how water systems provide and charge for services to their customers. EPA expects that any attempt to assert federal authority over how water systems charge, what if I have lead pipes? Contact your water utility or a licensed plumber to find out if you have lead service lines, a pipe that runs from the water main or curb to the home's internal plumbing. Fixtures in your home may also contain lead. The likelihood of lead pipes increases if your house was built before 1986. If you can find out if you had lead service lines on your own, two, use a key or a coin to gently scratch the pipe. If your pipe is soft, easily scratched, and a magnet doesn't stick to it, then it may, may be made of lead. Connect with your local utility to see if they have a lead service line replacement program in the works. Some municipalities offer free replacements or rebates to help offset costs, but in many cases, households are financially responsible for replacing the private side of the lead pipe. If you are pregnant or have a child in your home and are concerned about blood lead levels, you should consult with a family doctor or pediatrician. Lead can impact fetus development and cause behavior learning problems in small children. While increasingly rare, lead exposure can be fatal or result in hospitalization. Your local state or county health department can also provide additional information. You can reduce exposure by flushing your water before consumption, regularly cleaning your faucet screen, using a water filter certified to remove lead, and using cold water for drinking, cooking, and making baby formula. Boiling water does not remove lead. Our next article, Waterloo Schools 
C-assistant enrollment. Total numbers, total student number, climbed by two as ESAs took fewer than feared. Maria Kuiper, out of Waterloo. Enrollment at Waterloo Community Schools held steady this year. The school district has 10,008 students for 2023-24, two more than the previous school year. An official enrollment count was taken in early October. The Iowa Department of Education recently released statewide enrollment figures. Superintendent Jared Smith said the district officials were surprised when the numbers were released because they expected enrollment would decrease due to education savings accounts. I had people thinking that we might be down 100 students, he said. So to actually, like, maintain and to go up a couple students is very encouraging. Numbers for each grade level stayed consistent. There were 18 more high school students, 10 fewer middle school students, and 6 fewer elementary school students. 17 more students open enrolled into the school district for a total of 79.3. The decimal point represents children who did not attend the district full-time. Smith said most of these students come from Cedar Falls or Hudson School Districts. This year, 623.1 children enrolled out of the district, an increase of 75 students. Last school year, 548 students left the district, 114 more than the previous year. Smith thinks the school district markets itself well to families with school-aged children with programs like the Waterloo Career Center, special education programs, English language learning programs, and accelerated course offerings such as international baccalaureate and advanced placement classes. School choice is becoming more and more of a thing, but we feel like we offer the best learning option for kids, he said. While there will be some challenges, we feel like that number is going to not only stay consistent, we're feeling good about that number going up. The Iowa Department of Education reports 684 students living within the district's boundaries utilize education savings accounts. A, breakout, a breakdown of what schools they attend was not available. The district's budget enrollment increased 59.31 from last year to a total of 10,731.65. That number is used to determine state funding. Our next article, Defendant Takes the Stand in Halloween Shooting Trial. This is by Jeff Reimitz out of Waterloo. A Waterloo man accused of shooting an acquaintance on Halloween said he didn't do it. Christopher Wortham Abram, 45, took the stand in his own defense Thursday, denying any role in the shooting of 45-year-old Marcel Rose on South Street, and denying any knowledge of two guns found at his home days later. Rose, who survived the shooting and continues to suffer from the bullet wound, earlier took the stand, telling jurors he was kind of certain it was Abram who pulled the trigger. The jury also heard testimony from law enforcement that officers found a 9mm Tangfoglio pistol under some clothing in a ground-floor bedroom at 928 Lafayette Street that had Abram's nickname, Terrific, spray-painted on the wall. Abram and another man also were found inside the home. The tan foglio had genetic material that matched Abram's DNA profile on the grip, and ballistics tests linked the weapon to shell casings found at the shooting scene, according to authorities. Abram told jurors he had been living at the house since 2010, and he said other people, many that he doesn't know, regularly come and go from the residence, sometimes entering through windows, sometimes selling drugs there. It's kind of like a safe house for people to go to, Abrams said. According to Abrams' account, he had been having sex with another man upstairs at the house on the day police raided it. 
He said when police entered, the other man darted downstairs. Police testified they talked to the man who said he had come over to fix the furnace at the house and officers released him. Waterloo man charged in pizza delivery robberies. Out of Waterloo, police have charged a Waterloo man in connection with a series of pizza delivery robberies in January and February. DeQualis Spates Ketchens, 19, was charged with two counts of first-degree robbery, as well as two counts of fifth-degree theft and one count of second-degree burglary. Authorities allege Spates Ketchens was involved in January 27th. A Pizza Hut driver was sent to a Marsh Street address around 10.14 p.m., the suspect grabbed the food from the vehicle and ran off. January 31st, Papa John's pizza driver was sent to an address on Sullivan Avenue around 7.40 p.m. and found the home empty. When he returned to his vehicle, the suspect stuck his arm in the window and held a gun to the driver's stomach and took the food. February 3rd, a Pizza Hut driver was sent to an address on Boston Avenue around 1.15 p.m. The person who placed the order took the food, refused to pay, and ran away. February 6th, a Domino's pizza driver was sent to an address on Mildred Road around 9.15 p.m. He was approached by a man with a gun who took the food and the warming bag and fled. A phone number used to place one of the orders was traced to Spates Ketchens, according to court records. Officers searched his home at 2820 East 4th Street on Friday and found the Domino's warming bag and other items. Spates Ketchens also was arrested for fifth-degree theft and interference for allegedly taking $75 worth of items from Quickstar on Fletcher Avenue around 4 a.m. February 16th. Police said the investigation is ongoing. Fire leaves two displaced in Waterloo. This is an article by Andy Malone. Two people were displaced after their mobile home went up in flames on a windy Saturday night. Firefighters responded at about 7 p.m. to the Cedar Knoll Mobile Home Park, where they found and extinguished the fully engulfed home at the tail end of Park Ridge Road. Battalion Chief Ben Peterson said neither the woman nor her adult son were at 3325 Park Ridge Road at the time neighbors called in to report the flames surging through the walls and roof. Their dog was initially unaccounted for and later found to have died in the fire, however. The home is a complete loss, according to Peterson. The Red Cross has been called to assist. The fire was strengthened by the winds. No nearby structures were exposed to the flames, Peterson noted. The cause is under investigation, but is not believed to be suspicious in nature. Emily Swackhammer started a GoFundMe page titled Help My Mom and Brother from House Fire after they were left with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Go online to https colon slash slash gofund.me slash 5cc5e313. Our next article, The Edge of the Apocalypse. Cedar Falls Native takes audience to end of the world. This is by Melody Parker out of Cedar Falls. The journey has been long and arduous for Carison Morrissey's newest movie. It wasn't the end of the world, but that's exactly where the filmmaker's apocalyptic tale of lust, love, and wrath is set. The Savages premiered earlier... I'm sorry... The Salvages premiered earlier this month in Iowa City at the Film Scene Theater at the Chauncey. It was a massive success. We sold out the theater and got some extremely positive reactions, said Morrissey. A true auteur, Morrissey was writer, director, cinematographer, and editor on the project. The script idea grew out of a conversation with castmates in a 2022 
Cedar, Rap- Cedar Falls Community Theater production of Bram Stoker's Dracula. It was just a vague concept, and I kept following ideas and came up with a script, Morrissey said. The story begins three days before the apocalypse. Judith, J. Croft, is incarcerated at an academy for delinquents, an alternative to jail that proves worse than she could imagine. The academy's abusive and predatory figurehead, Reverend Holting, Joe Frenna, menaces Judith from the start. J. Croft loved her role as Judith. She's very reserved and introspective and always questioning the world around her. She comes up with her own morals and values and follows them, she said. It's really interesting to me being able to tell a queer story and bring up really important themes like corruption and power. We are portraying really serious content and themes, but it was always a blast on set. We had a wonderful cast and crew. Other cast members are Jessica Buchanan, Delia Hemlock, Elena Swenka, Emily Laxa, Shannon Deverah, and Asa Crow. I ended up having to recast several roles due to scheduling conflicts, so that took time, but creatively it really worked out, Morrissey said. This is a very small story that takes place at the end of the world. We're following these three characters in a closed-off environment and talk about power and how people attain it and use it to control others. I like the idea that life keeps happening up until the moment it doesn't. In certain aspects, new talent changed the tone of the script, Morrissey said. It was stressful, but at the same time, it was fun to watch the project evolve as new actors came in. Scenes were filmed in Cedar Falls and Cedar Rapids. I like to shoot my own projects. When I write something, I'm seeing the movie over and over in my head. I'm able to bring it to life with a camera, Morrissey explained. I don't consider myself overly authoritative when I'm directing. There are moments when I'm exacting, but I like the collaborative process. I like to guide, not dictate. Rose Smith served as production assistant, location manager, and makeup artist, and Stephanie Schneider was intimacy coordinator. Michael Duede composed the original score. Drone operator was Benjamin B. A Cedar Falls native, Morrissey fell in love with movie making in grade school, filling binders with ideas, stories, and scripts. Now the filmmaker has won numerous Iowa Motion Picture Association awards, including the Award of Excellence. Morrissey has entered The Salvages in three Iowa film festivals, as well as festivals in other states. There definitely will be other public screenings in the future. I'm excited to see what festivals it gets into, Morrissey added. New CFU general manager wins unanimous approval. Abernathy is first woman to lead Cedar Falls Utilities. This is by Andy Malone. The Cedar Falls Utilities Board of Trustees made its next general manager selection official Wednesday. The board voted 4-0 to to appoint Susan Abernathy, Director of Employee and Legal Services since 2013, as its 10th general manager and first woman in the role. Trustee Nick Evans was absent. She was the only internal candidate of the 68 applications received for the top job and will replace Steve Bernard, 62, who is expected to retire no later than May 1st after a 28-year career with CFU, 7 as general manager. The vote approved her appointment and employment contract for Thursday through December 31st, 2026, stipulating first that she'll serve as an assistant general manager, a temporary title as part of the transition, and be paid based on an annual $220,000 salary. Upon taking the helm, she'll be compensated $230,000 annually, a 20.08% raise from her current salary of 
$1,538. The hiring process dates back to the middle of the fall. It was a really, really big process for a very important decision, and I couldn't be happier with the outcome, and I can't wait to make this official, said Vice Chair Jeff Engel before the vote. He thanked Dick McAllister, Trustee Chair, Audra Heinemann, Human Resources Manager, and Brad Strauss, Trustee Counsel, for their work and leadership handling the applicants, interviews, and communication. Abernathy is a 1987 graduate of Charles City High School and 1990 graduate of the University of Northern Iowa, becoming CFU's general counsel and head of human resources marked her first job in the utility industry. Before that, her experience included time as a Cedar Falls City attorney from 1999 to 2011 and at private firms Ehlers and Cooney from 2011 to 2013 and Redford, Mason, Larson, and Moore from 1992 to 2001. She earned her Juris Doctorate from the University of Iowa in 1992. Your selection made a lot of employees very happy also. All positive comments, Bernard added. McAllister previously told the Courier her talent and leadership, as well as her experience, are what got the board's attention. She performed well during the interviews and demonstrated a deep knowledge base as well. In addition to compensation, the contract included other basic terms stipulating vacation time and expense reimbursement. She'll be evaluated by the board in her new capacity for the first time in July and at least semi-annually going forward. The salary will be reviewed on an annual basis during performance reviews. If terminated without cause, the board must pay Abernathy's salary for the month she's let go and six more consecutive months as severance. Abernathy can terminate the agreement by giving 90 days written notice. Abernathy must relocate within two years to the service area of at least one of the four municipal utilities CFU operates. She now lives just north of Waverly on an acreage. It's a big honor. It's very humbling and a big responsibility. And I've pledged to the employees that I'm going to do my best and always be there for them, said Abernathy during a previous interview soon after being selected. My mission and vision and goal is to keep providing high-quality, innovative services and products to our community that bring the best value to them. That's our mission statement, and that's what we are going to keep doing. Feldmeyer Equipment to Construct New Shell Rock Manufacturing Facility The Iowa Economic Development Authority Board recently approved tax benefits for Feldmeyer Equipment to construct a new manufacturing facility in Shell Rock, according to a news release. The Syracuse, New York-based company plans to build a new 130,000-square-foot facility near its current building at 32682 Highway 3. Director of Marketing Crystal Paoli said early summer 2025 is the target opening date. It represents a capital investment by the company at $22.88 million, bringing additional manufacturing capabilities through an expansion of product lines seen at its other facilities in New York. The project is expected to create three jobs. Some 22 employees will be transferred to the new facility. The company met requirements for the incentives at a qualifying wage of $26.64 per hour, a breakdown shows. At its Shell Rock location, Feldmeyer manufactures stainless steel tanks and pressure vessels in the dairy and food industries, and provides custom fabrication services. Paolelli said the current building did not offer the possibility 
of an addition, and the hope is now, with its new facility, to expand the cornerstone Shell Rock operation to other industries the company is already involved in, including the cosmetic and pharmaceutical industries. As we've grown steadily year over, the product has to grow with it. We're all around keeping up with demand and our customers' needs, said Pale Lily. According to the company's website, the 100,000-square-foot manufacturing facility has approximately 50 employees and commenced operation in 2001 as its fifth production facility at the time. Okay, we have a few metro briefs here. Bridge over Crane Creek closed. This is out of Dunkerton. The Cedar Wapsie Road bridge over Crane Creek between Elk Run and Crane Creek Roads is closed for a rehabilitation project. The bridge is northwest of Dunkerton. The posted detour will be U.S. Highway 63, Dunkerton Road, and Raymond Road. The project is anticipated to be closed for four to five months, weather dependent. Maple Syrup Fest set at Hartman. Out of Cedar Falls, Black Hawk County Conservation Maple Syrup Festival fundraiser will be March 8th, 9th, and 10th at Hartman Reserve Nature Center at 657 Reserve Drive. Attendees enjoy all-you-can-eat pancakes with pure maple syrup made from the sap of Hartman maple trees, sausage, sidecar coffee, and Hansen's dairy products. Conservation staff will be on hand in the sugar shack to show how sap is boiled down into maple syrup. Raffle prizes include a kayak package from Crawdaddy Outdoors, a bike package from Bike Tech, a diamond necklace from Riddle's Jewelry, a deluxe overnight package from the Isle Casino, a set of electric outdoor landscaping tools, and the Big Wallet, a collection of local business gift certificates worth hundreds of dollars. Other major donors are Ron Cervetti, Dr. Greg and Susan Lance, Koloff Media, VGM Group, Friends of Hartman Reserve, 1-3 Design, Community Auto Group, and Taylor Veterinary Hospital. Reservations are required. Adults are $10, youth 3-15 to 15 are $5, and no cost for children 2 and under. Go online to www.blackhawkcountyparks.com under the events menu to see complete details, available time frames for seating, and to make reservations. Paper tickets will not be sold in advance or at the door, and no walk-ins will be accepted. Guests can be seated only at the time for which reservations were made. All proceeds from this event will be used for special projects and natural resource management in Block Black Hawk County Parks. Call 319-277-2187 with any questions. Our next article, man charged with pointing ghost gun at police officers out of Waterloo. A Waterloo man has been arrested after he allegedly pointed a ghost gun at police officers who responded to an assault call Sunday. Police arrested Detrell Deshaun Washington Roby, 25, at 119 Irving Street, for assault on a peace officer with a weapon, felon in possession of a firearm, carrying weapons, and a drug charge. He was being held without bond at the Black Hawk County Jail as of Monday morning. According to court records, officers were sent to 2418 West 7th Street around 8.35 p.m. for a report of an assault taking place in a parked car outside the address and the suspect walking away. When police arrived, they found Washington Roby, walking in the area of West 7th Street and Lorraine Avenue. Washington Roby allegedly pulled a handgun from his waistband and pointed it at an officer in a squad car. 
He then continued walking and tossed the gun in the backyard of a home on West 7th. Police seized an unbranded 9mm pistol without a serial number. Court records show Washington Roby was released from prison in December after serving time for a federal firearm charge. The felony conviction prohibits him from legally acquiring and possessing guns. Ghost guns are firearms made from partially complete frames that can be finished with common tools and assembled from readily available parts. Until recently, ghost gun kits didn't contain manufacturer serial numbers, which means authorities were not able to trace the sale of the weapon and didn't require background checks, which means they could be easily acquired by people prohibited from possessing firearms. In 2022, new federal regulations began to require kit manufacturers to add traceable serial numbers, require sales be made through licensed firearms dealers, and require purchasers to undergo background checks. You are listening to the reading of The Courier for Tuesday, February 20th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Jane Kramer Herrera, 54, passed away on February 14th in Oskaloosa, Iowa. She was born May 6, 1969, in Waterloo, the daughter of Patrick and Rita Jurgens Kramer. She married Ernie Skip Herrera on December 27, 2003, in Waterloo, and they later divorced. Jane graduated from Columbus High School, furthering her studies at Hawkeye Community College and Walden University to become a registered nurse with a master's degree in education. She worked at the Western Home for 17 years as director of nursing. She later became a nursing instructor at Kaplan University and Hawkeye Community College. She ended her career as assistant professor at Mercy College of Health Sciences in Des Moines. The bulk of her career was spent working with the elderly, which she had a passion for and attended many of her residents' funerals. The bulk of her career was spent working with the elderly. Excuse me, I just read that. Jane had a big heart and caring spirit. She loved spending time with her family and friends and will be dearly missed. She was a huge animal lover. She treasured her dogs Heidi, Pinto Bean, Keela, and cats Coco and Lightning Bug, whom she considered her children. She was an avid reader and loved watching classic movies and traveling. The family wishes to express their heartfelt appreciation and sincere gratitude for the skilled, kind, and compassionate care at Northern Mahaska Specialty Care. Jane will be remembered by her mother, Rita Kramer of Waterloo, two sisters, Sarah, spell Scott Winky, and Mary Pat Kramer of Waterloo, two brothers, Pete, spouse Lori Kramer of Naperville, Illinois, and Charlie Kramer of Cedar Falls, four nephews, Tyler, spouse Kristen Winky of Castle Pines, Colorado, Ryan, spouse Andrea Winky of Parker, Colorado, Nick Kramer of Brooklyn, New York, Aiden Kramer of Hamden, Connecticut, and a special friend, Dorothy Dot Verplug of Oskaloosa. Proceeded in death by her father, Patrick Kramer, four aunts, Joan, spouse Dick Ford, uh, sister Dolores Kramer, BVM, and Lois Wengenecht, and Anne, spouse George Weber, one uncle, Jimmy Jurgens, a cousin, Amy Allen. Massive Christian burial will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 24th at St. Edward Catholic Church with burial at Mount Olivet Cemetery. Public visitation one hour prior to the Mass on Saturday at the church. The Mass will be live-streamed on the parish website, www.sted.org. Haggerty Wakeoff Grarup, 
Funeral Service on West Ridgeway is in charge of arrangements. Memorials may be directed to St. Edward Church or Cedar Valley Hospice. Betty Lou Moore, 93, lifelong resident of Waterloo, passed away surrounded by her family on Thursday, February 15th. She was born on April 27, 1930, to Calvin and Mary Harris Sanders. Betty married Tommy Lee Moore on June 9, 1948, in Waterloo. He preceded her in death on February 23, 2000. Betty attended Washington and Longfellow Elementary Schools and East Junior High School. She had several jobs during her life. Some included working as a medical aide with special needs adults. She would bring her clients home from the old St. Francis Health Center on Independence Avenue and would prepare meals so her clients and family would share meals in her home together. Betty served as a matron for the Black Hawk County Sheriff's Office where she would once more prepare meals and accompany deputies when they transported female prisoners. Betty was baptized in the Cedar River and was the oldest active member of Mount Carmel Missionary Baptist Church until the time of her passing, and she served as an usher and was on the Mothers and Missions Board. When not busy tending to her family, Betty enjoyed crocheting, knitting, sewing, and working on ceramic pieces. Although she loved being outdoors gardening and fishing, she was afraid of worms. Therefore, she relied on her family to bait her cane pole, but loved to clean and cook rabbits and squirrels after her husband would return home from hunting. Betty will be remembered by her family by singing the song she held close to her and always sang to her children and grandchildren, Summertime by Ella Fitzgerald. She was also preceded in death by her parents, her firstborn grandson, James D. Fullalove, Jr., and siblings, Catherine Willingham, Dorothy Kellner, Evelyn Taylor, Nora B. Chambers, Samella Chambers, Augustine Bennett, Vera Howard, and Howard Sanders. Betty will be dearly missed by her children, Patricia Fullalove, Glenn Moore, and Deborah, spouse Gary Goodson, Gaston, spouse Linda Moore, all of Waterloo, and Noreen Moore of Marshalltown, siblings Helen Smith of Waterloo, and Walter, spouse Karen Sanders of Chester, Virginia, sister-in-law Virginia Austin of Waterloo, and a host of grandchildren, great and great-great-grandchildren, nieces, nephews, cousins, and friends. The family will receive visitors from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Thursday, February 22nd at Locke at 4th Street, 1519 West 4th Street, Waterloo. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on February 23rd at Mount Carmel Missionary Baptist Church with burial following at Garden of Memories Cemetery in Waterloo. Memorial contributions may be directed to the family. Should visitors wish to visit the Moore family prior to services, they may go to the Moore residence, 1315 Hummingbird Circle in Waterloo. The Moore family would like to express their gratitude to Cedar Valley Hospice for all of their care provided to Betty. Lock on 4th at 1519 West 4th Street, Waterloo, is handling arrangements. Richard Dean Gutnecht, Richard Dean Gutnecht, 80, of Cedar Falls, died Thursday, February 15th at Mercy One Cedar Falls Medical Center. Richard was born July 23, 1943, in Vinton, to the late John Herman and Mildred Marie Shepard Goodnecht. He faithfully served his country in the U.S. Navy. Dick worked as a machinist for John Deere for 30 years, retiring in the mid-1990s. In his free time, he enjoyed college and professional baseball, basketball, and football, in addition to NASCAR. Dick loved his grandchildren and all children, including neighborhood kids. Dick is survived by his children, Callie, spouse Jeff Henricks, 
of Story City, and Patrick Goodnecht of Cedar Falls. Grandchildren, Mari, spells Ben Tidgren, Henricks, Gabby, spells Aaron Funky, Henricks, and Caden Henricks. Siblings, Marlene Strick, Stricker of Cedar Falls, Donald, spells Leanne Goodnecht of Grimes, Marilyn, spells Bob Christie of St. Charles, Minnesota, Robert, spells Diane Goodnecht of Otter Trail, Minnesota, and Linda, spells Larry Miller of Cedar Falls, an extended family and friends. The funeral service for Dick will be at 2 p.m. on Wednesday, February 21st, at Dahl Van Hove School, I'm sorry, Schoof Funeral Home. The visitation will be from 1 p.m. until the time of service on Wednesday at the funeral home. Burial will be at Zion Lutheran Cemetery in Hudson. Memorials may be directed to the Elizabeth Collins Foundation or Cedar Valley Hospice. Michael Mike Collins, 59 of Waterloo, passed away peacefully on Thursday, February 15th at Unity Point Health Allen Memorial Hospital. A private family service honoring Mike has been scheduled and memorials in his name may be directed to his family for a later designation. Mitchell Family Funeral Home has been entrusted with the care of Mike and his family. For additional information or to send a condolence, please visit it. Please visit http colon slash www.mitchellfh.com or call 641-844-1234. Left to cherish his memory are his mother and stepfather, Connie and Stan Raskow of Whit- Whitleyville, Tennessee. His siblings, Jill Collins of Gladbrook, Christine, spouse Jeff Fisher of Whitleyville, Tennessee, Lisa, spouse Drew Podgorski of Raskow, Illinois, and John Collins of Gutenberg, as well as numerous nieces and nephews. Jeffrey Jeff Joel Fisher, 73, passed away peacefully in his sleep on Wednesday, February 7th at Harmony Cedar Rapids. Massive Christian burial will be 10 a.m. Wednesday, February 21st at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in LaPorte City with Father Anthony Nictia as celebrant. Friends may visit with family from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, February 20th at Van Steen Hoos Tehan Funeral Home in Vinton. Burial will be in Westview Cemetery in LaPorte City. Jeff was born October 25, 1950 in Waverly, the son of Virgil and Lorraine Fangman Fisher. He attended the Iowa School for the Deaf, graduating in 1968. On June 12, 1992, Jeff was united in marriage to Lisa Swenka in Vinton. To this union, they were gifted two children. The couple later divorced. He was employed as a journeyman electrician, retiring in 2017. Jeff's curious and wondering nature led him to a life of traveling, sketching, playing poker, and collecting old vehicles, tractors, and model cars. He will be remembered for his humor, creativity, innovations, art, and for being a dedicated father. Left to cherish Jeff's memory are his daughter, Zora, spouse Patrick, Ciciarelli, son, Henry Fisher, sisters, Deb, spouse Dick Kuntz, and Jenny, spouse Sherwin Meyer, and brothers, Nick Fisher, Doug, spouse Donna Fisher, Terry, spouse Jeannie Fisher, and Tim, Significant other, Joe Clark Fisher, brother-in-law, Dick Evan, uncle, Lest- uncle Lester, spouse Beverly Fisher, and many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, sister Cheryl Evan, sister-in-law, Charlotta Toth Fisher, aunts Linda Heaton, and Carol Briggs, 
Uncle Larry Fangman, nieces and nephews, Missy Smith, Sarah Fisher, Clinton Kuntz, Kelly Kuntz, and Wade Evan, and a cousin, Bill Fangman. A memorial fund has been established. Jeff's family would like to extend a special thank you to IBEW 288, Harmony Nursing Home, and St. Luke's and Mercy Medical Center, both of Cedar Rapids. Online condolences for Jeff's family may be left at www.thanfuneralhome.com. Death notices, Mary Catherine Link, age 103, died Thursday, January 25th. Mass will be held at 11.30 a.m. Saturday, February 24th at St. Boniface Catholic Church in Ionia. Friends may greet the family from 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday, February 24th at Hugh Bach and Johnson Funeral Home and Crematory in Nashua. James R. Wagner, 80, of Waterloo, died on February 18th at Northcrest Specialty Care in Waterloo. The memorial service will be on Wednesday, February 21st at 3 p.m. at Parrot and Wood Chapel of Memories, www.parrotandwoodsfh.com. Dennis Merle Hippen of Applington, age 80, died Saturday, February 17th. Private funeral services will be Thursday at the Christian Reformed Church in Austinville. Visitation will be from 4 to 8 p.m. on Wednesday, February 21st at the Redmond Funeral and Cremation Services, Parkersburg Funeral Home. Okay, we're going to turn to the sports section. There are a lot of articles here on the state wrestling meet. Um, I'm turning to the section called State Wrestling Review. Hopefully we can cover quite a few results here. A dream come true, Olsen a champ. Union has pair of state champs. Osage wins individual team title. This is by Jim Nelson. Out of Des Moines, it was the last thing before he went to sleep and the first thing he thought about when he woke up in the morning. Now, Union of LaPorte City's Caleb Olson doesn't have to dream about it. With a 3-0 win over Lucas Crawl of Garner Hayfield Ventura at 150 pounds, Olson can now call himself a state champion. Getting my hand raised, it was a good run. I'm so glad to go out like this, Olson said. A lot of years went into this, and I have thought about this moment before I go to bed every night. It was a good night. The match was scoreless after the first period and still scoreless after Olsen rode Crawl out the entire second period. The ride out was big, Olsen said. I rode everybody all week. High school should add riding time. I would have had 12 minutes of it this week. Olsen, who will wrestle at Upper Iowa next winter, escaped early in the third and then scored some critical points with a takedown with 1 minute 12 seconds left in the match. Braden Bonesack gave Union its second state champ as the junior captured his second state title with a 4-2 win over Webster City's Lyndon Fexafoam at 113. Feels pretty good, Bonesack said. Prepared hard for it all season and got it done. Two-time state champion Jace Hedeman, also a junior, fell short in the 126 final. Webster City's Carson Doolittle scored an escape with one second left on the clock in regulation to force sudden victory and then scored in scramble initiated by a shot from Hedeman 27 seconds into sudden victory to win 3-1. The Knights took third overall, winning their fourth team trophy since 2013. That is something we talked about in the room at the start of the year, Bonesack said. It is something we wanted to accomplish, and we did it. The Knights also had Coy Mellert take fifth at 106, and Caden Jones was seventh at 120. Osage was the star of the show on Saturday night at the state wrestling tournament in Wells Fargo Arena, and the Green Devils made some history in the process. 
Osage won the Class 2A individual team title, finishing with 124.5 points. It topped Mount Vernon's 110 and Union of LaPorte City's 95. It's the first time in school history that the Green Devils won back-to-back state championships at the individual tournament, and it's Osage's third in the past five years. It is the program's sixth title overall. In the process, Osage also set a new school record with four individual state champions in the same tournament. Blake Fox at 138 pounds, Anders Kittleson at 144 pounds, Tucker Stangle at 157 pounds, and Mac Muller at 285 pounds. That's a pretty big deal considering our history goes back to the 1930s, Coach Brent Jennings said. That's pretty good. It was a pretty good day, pretty good evening. We couldn't have, we couldn't have asked for much better. Our kids just wrestled really well tonight. They listened to coaching, and they did what they were supposed to do. They just had a really good tournament. Muller's title match at heavyweight might have been the only one that was not relatively close. Fox, Kittleson, and Stengel put together gritty performances in their championship matches. The team title was already wrapped up as Fox won the 138-pound match over Mount Vernon's Jace Jaspers with a 3-1 decision. That started a run, as it has all year, for Kittleson and Stengel to win in two of the next three matches and put the exclamation point on a solid week for Osage. I'm just grateful for our practice room because that is what got us here, Stengel said. We have a really tough practice room with four state champions. I'm thankful for the partners we got. It's pretty awesome that we all succeed. Osage's four champions were not all that got the Green Devils over the line. Max Gast finished sixth at 165 pounds after appearing in the semifinals. Darren Adams won a key match, too, while Jasper Sonberg and Ledger Nels also qualified for the state tournament. These guys came, they listened really well, and it's such an exciting and fun group to be around, Jennings said. They are great kids on top of being tremendous workers, and it showed. After losing the semifinals as both a sophomore and a junior, Braden McShane not only reached the state finals, but he delivered himself a victory. The Chickasaw senior toppled Gavin Bridgewater of South Tama 5-4 to win the 2A 215-pound title. He is from New Hampton. In early December, McShane handed Bridgewater his only loss during the Cliff Keene Independence Invitational Finals 6-5. Saturday's rematch was every bit as hard. It feels good. It's hard to beat somebody twice, especially when they're a good competitor like he is, McShane said. It feels good to get that one done. It was a long time coming is all I really can say. I have always wanted to be a state champion, and it feels pretty good to win one a Part as part of a traditional rich program as New Hampton. Okay, one more article here on Class 1A. History made, Dons win sixth straight title. Which storyline should come first? Should it be the 2024 state title? Should it be the fact it was the sixth state title in a row, a state record? Would it be the three individual champions, or would it be the two brothers who both won individual titles in their last season competing together? When it comes to the 2023-24 high school wrestling season, the community of Gilbertville is going to remember this Don Bosco Don wrestling team for a long time. With state champion Dawson Youngblood, Kyler, and Caden Knack, the Dons easily won their sixth consecutive Class 1A traditional team title Saturday at Wells Fargo Arena. Don Bosco finished with eight medalists who racked up 103.5 points, beating Albernet by 31.5 and Wilton by 39.5 to become the first program in Iowa high school wrestling history 
to win six straight consecutive traditional titles. Don Bosco has had won five straight twice, 2005 to 2009 and 2019 to current, and Waterloo West won five straight from 1942 to 1946. Okay, We didn't talk about it at all because I didn't want anybody thinking about it, Don Bosco head coach Chris Ortner said. Obviously, this team won this one, but this one is for anybody who has ever wore the singlet or coached here or anybody who has supported our program. This is pretty cool. I'm super honored to be part of this. It is much bigger than myself. This is a tradition that goes back to Dan Mashik. He built this program. Tom Ketman and Tom Hogan carried it on. We are very fortunate to have the support we do, and this is for those people. Kyler Nacri-Paul calls, however, just once when Ortner brought up the fact of winning six straight, saying it happened during the summer. He said this team has a chance to go into the history books, Kyler said. That was really it. We all knew about it, but we didn't really talk about it. We know this stuff is not given to us, and we had to work day in and day out to win six in a row. Don Bosco never trailed in the team race this week, leading after the first round Wednesday and expanding its lead over the next four days as Alburnett, Wilton, and Jessup, which had a historic season of its own, could not keep up. It's pretty special because it is one of a kind, Senior Andrew Kimball, who took third at 165, said. It means a lot to everybody. It is the first time being done so. It is really special. After a surprising start to their evening, the Dons held one long coronation party after. Top-ranked freshman Hayden Schwab suffered the first defeat of his career in the 106 final as he and Wilton's Liam Aldfinger kicked off the night with one of the best matches of the finals. Schwab scored on the edge with a hip toss for and then tilted Aldfinger for a 4-0 lead in the first period. But in the second period, Aldfinger tossed Schwab to his back for two and two it and to it and was tied 4-4, but Schwab scored a reversal with 25 seconds left in the period for a 6-4 lead. The two started neutral to begin the third, and in a scramble, Aldfinger scored to tie it again. Then with Schwab trying to get out, Aldfinger hit a standing cradle for three near fall. Schwab reversed with just under 15 seconds left, but his attempt came up short in a 9-8 loss. It was Schwab's first loss of the season, and he ends his freshman year 37-1. to I have no doubt that he's, this is going to make him better, Ortner said. Maybe he doesn't see it now, but it is going to make him better, and I believe that 100%. He is going to use that as fuel. Dawson Youngblood brought home Don Bosco's first title as the freshman downed North Butler Clarksville's Tanner Erges in the 132 finals 4-2. It was expected, Youngblood said, of the title. I put in the work, and I expected it to show. Kyler Knack then made it two titles and two for himself as he held off Wes Hancock's Kellen Smith 3-2 at 157. A year ago, Knack beat Smith in the 150 finals. I love wrestling, Kyler said. You can't put into words how much I love competing in this atmosphere. The two matches later, big brother Caden stepped onto the center mat and erased some demons by beating Emmitsburg's Jace Nelson Brown 3-1 at 175, capping off his career with a fourth state medal and first state title. I feel a lot of excitement to go out on top with my brother, Caden said. It is a heck of a feeling. I don't think anything can top this. Thankful. Having lost in the 145-pound finals last year, the victory lifted a huge weight off his shoulders, and he celebrated like it by spiking his head gear over the win in a perfect bounce to assistant coach Cole Welter. 
I thought about it before because if we didn't have it locked up, I didn't want to cause us losing a team point, Caden said. Props to the guys this morning. They got it locked up for me so I could do something dumb like that, but I just, well, I was just enjoying the moment. In addition to their finalists, the Don saw freshman Ethan Christopher take third at 138, freshman Kyler Salas took eighth at 215, and senior Landon Fernandez took fourth at 190. And what might be scaring for the rest of the state is the seventh title in a row is not out of the realm as the Dons return seven of their ten state qualifiers. Okay, I think we have time. I skipped the letters to the editor, so I'm going to go back and see if I can catch a couple of those before we run out of time today. Our first one is from Dave Smith of Waterloo. Perspectives. What are we seeing in recent perspective? How about these? Having a border wall does not mean keep out. It means use the door, come in legally. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, according to Facebook fact-checkers, it is, in fact, a squirrel. I was just asked to not use my electricity from 2 till 8 to keep from destroying the grid, but I should run out and buy the first electric car I can find. God formed us. Sin deformed us. The Bible informs us. Jesus transforms us. We live in a world where the truth has to be explained again and again, while a lie is believed. ISIS was defeated under Trump. Hamas didn't invade Israel under Trump. The world respected President Trump's mantra of peace through strength. What are we seeing in the current administration? Our next letter from Bob Black of Waterloo. Watch out, Iowa. Authoritarian government, unquestioning obedience to authority rather than individual freedom, judgment, and action. When Iowa votes into power an authoritarian political party, such as the current Iowa Republican Party, this is what we got. The Republican Party in Iowa is ruthlessly attempting to control our children's education, the books and public libraries that a citizen is allowed to read. Not content with this, they attack how the needy are fed, children mainly. Has it been too long ago for Iowans to remember? World War II and the authoritarian government of a little man with a mustache and snappy salute? Watch out, Iowa. And that again was from Bob Black of Waterloo. And that does it for today's reading of The Courier for Tuesday, February 20th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep. Deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.